Welcome. It's great to see you all. Happy New Year. Yes. I would have said Happy New Year last week. I wasn't here. The Black Plague of Death had to overcome my household. All right, it's not good when you come back from the ski trip and bad things are happening with the flu bug. It's, how many of you guys actually got the flu? Just a quick poll. Okay, all of you. Great. Um, it's awesome. It's God's way of being gracious to us. But hey, seriously, it's great to have you here. Um, really excited about tonight. L- listen to this. If I were to break down chronologically our entire existence on this earth as humans, we're humans, most of us, I would break it down like this. I would say creation. I would say fall. I would say waiting for the Messiah. I would say the Messiah comes, and then I would say waiting on the Messiah. Now let me explain. So you have the creation. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates you. He creates me. He creates us. Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall of man. Sin comes into the world. And then the rest of the Old Testament is the story of the Israelite nation waiting on the Messiah to come. The Messiah then comes. He lives a perfect life. He dies on a cross. He raises from the dead. And then we enter into another period of waiting for the Messiah to come back. Scripture says that he's going to come back with a robe dipped in blood, sword coming out of his mouth. And he's going to come back and take and redeem his people. And he's going to judge those who have been faithless. That's what Scripture says. You and I, I'm going to say it the obvious here, didn't experience the first period of waiting. We weren't there. If you were, you'd be like hundreds and Hundreds of years old, right? You'd have like Jeremy's beard times 85,000, right? But here's the reality is you and I are in the second waiting period. That's where we're at. We're here. We're living in it. We're existing in it. We're right here, right now. Listen to this. Tonight, I love this. As we open God's Word, He's going to teach us what it looks like to wait for His return. He's going to show us very clearly what life should look like in the waiting room as we wait for the Messiah to come back. And here's what I fear. Um, how many of you guys have ever babysat before? Okay. All right. Yeah. Lots of you guys. Quick poll. Jamie, how many of that? How many was that? Okay. Thank you, Jamie. All right. You're fired. All right. Um, I, I had younger siblings. And so I was always babysitting, uh, which was probably a bad call on my parents' part. But uh, as, as I grew older, I would babysit more. And here's what would happen. Okay. The parents would say, all right, kids, uh, Mark's, Mark's in charge tonight. Right. Which is. Horrible call on their part. And, and so we're leaving at 6, and we're going to be back at 10. We're going, to, we're going to come back at 10 o'clock tonight. The parents would walk out the door. Have you ever been here? And from 6 o'clock to 9.45, chaos. I mean, it's just, I mean, glass is breaking, mirrors are falling, frames are breaking. We're not changing diapers. Who cares? You know what I mean? I mean, no one's eating. The dishes aren't being done. It's, it's a household of chaos because you know that at 9.45, the parents are going to call on them their shoe-sized cell phone and say, hey, we're on our way home. You guys know what I'm talking about? Say by the bell, cell phones like the size of your face, you know? Yeah, old school, 1990 style, you know what I'm saying? My dad had one of those. So at 9.45, dad would ring. Uh, hey, Mark, how are things going? Oh, it's, go- Shh. it's going great, you know? Everyone's in bed, everything's perfect. I'm just sitting here reading my Bible. It's awesome, dad, you know? Well, hey, son, here's the deal. I'm going to be home in 15 minutes, okay? Great, great. And you all know this, right? Or, or maybe, maybe, maybe this is a better example. Some of you guys have been at a party before when the parents are supposed to come home at a certain time, right? 
that five minutes of cleanup is like the fastest you have ever cleaned up in your life, right? Dishes, you're just throwing them away because you don't want your parents to see the evidence. I mean, you're picking up everything. Everything is just like all of a sudden so that everyone, you just throw your, you just throw your little siblings in bed, which I did, you know, Bree, sorry, sorry, or Bree and Janae, sorry about that. And then, you're, and then you're just sitting there waiting at the door and your parents come in, you know, and you're like wearing a nice little, you know, you, you went ahead and put on the tux, you know, and you're standing there. Yes, hello, father and mother, you know, and they walk in. And they're like, so how'd it go? Well, we'll just look around, Mom and Dad. It was perfect. The kids were in bed by 6.30. Have you ever done that? Nope. You know, everything is great. Well, all the while, you know very well that it was a night of chaos. I fear that when it comes to waiting on the Lord, we're living in the period of time between 6 and 9.45, thinking that He's going to call, thinking that we're going to have time to clean up the mess before He comes back. Thinking that somehow, some way, that we're, we're going to be able to put things together and that he's going to call and say, hey, I'm coming back. And that, that somehow we'll just be able to clean everything up. He's already told us that, you know what, you can clean the outside of the dish, but I know the inside of the dish. So when you begin, like we should, putting scripture's teachings together, when you begin to put Jesus' teachings together, it starts to make sense that he's there between 6 and 9.45, just like he will be when he comes back. My fear is, friends, that many of us are waiting in this life of chaos, thinking that we have time. College students, this is why you've gone to college and you think you have four years just to do your thing, to figure it out, to experiment, to do all you've got. Because then you, you can get serious when you're 23 or 24 if you're on the six-year plan, like some of you are. Friends, Jesus gets very poignant with us. So open your Bible. So Luke chapter 12, verse 35, as he teaches us what it looks like to be in this second Waiting room period. If tonight is your first time here, again, I want to welcome you. We're traveling verse by verse through the great gospel of Dr. Luke. He was a physician, a doctor, making him instantly cool. Verse 35 says this. You guys all there? Awesome. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks they can immediately open the door for him. Now, this is awesome because he begins with a ton of imagery. First of all, to be dressed and ready for service. Doesn't it ring a bell a little bit when Scripture talks about putting on the full armor of God? What are we supposed to be equipped with? Our feet are supposed to be what? Yeah, like, like dressed with readiness, Scripture says, in the armor of God. And so here, the words to be dressed with readiness. Now, in ancient Jewish culture, you would wear a robe, okay? Kind of an outer garment. And to be dressed, ready for service is to take your robe and to tuck it in, which clearly would be a fashion statement. I think we could all agree. But you would tuck it in so that it would free the legs and show them off, right? But it would free the legs so that you could be mobile. So to be dressed ready for service, Jesus is saying that you've taken your robe and you've literally tucked it in so that your legs are freed, ready to go. That at any answer, at any moment, you could move. You could be mobile. You're also to keep your lamps burning. Newsflash, ancient Jewish culture had no electricity. So to see, you would have to light a lamp. There was no outdoor lighting besides the moon and the stars. And so to see in the middle of the night, you would have to keep the lamp burning. So Jesus says, listen, listen, listen. You're waiting for the master to come back from the wedding banquet. An ancient Jewish wedding banquet would sometimes last a week. Right? How many of you guys would like to go to a wedding like that? Yeah. But, but, but it wasn't all the time seven days. or Sometimes it could be five days, six days. So you never really knew. So here's what Jesus is saying. You need to be dressed like ready to be mobile, your lamp needs to be kept on so that 
when the master comes back and he knocks, your hand is literally right there on the door saying, yes, master, here I am. Everything's been kept perfectly waiting for your return. How about that image? How about that alertness and awareness of waiting on the master? Now, look at, look at how he talks about himself in verse 37. It will be good, and the better, uh, the better word for good here is blessed, for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. Hold on a second. Jesus says, if you do that, then the master turns into the what? Turns into the servant. I wonder if you're a disciple and, and this passage, this teaching is going through your mind when Jesus is dressed ready to serve and bends down on his knee and washes your nasty feet. I wonder if that was going through their mind. Oh, so this is what it means to be a, a servant king. This is what it means to come down and to serve the father by dying for the world. I wonder, I wonder if that's it. That's why Jesus is this great example of servant leadership. That somehow, leadership and love and power all work together by serving one another. He says, you know what? It's going to be good. Because the master is going to be dressed, ready to serve. And invite you into this great, eternal banquet. But the requirement is that you're waiting at the door. Is that you're ready. Is that at the moment that he would knock... All the preparations have been made. Quick heart check tonight. Uh, have the preparations been made? Yeah. Like before you came tonight. This is super cliche comment. If you were to come back right now, right? I've heard that so many times. But I wonder if tonight, if like it could just ring for a second for us, for me. If it were true that each of us in this room were literally waiting on the master to return. Are we at the door, waiting to open the door? Thankfully, Jesus continues. Look at this. Verse 38. It'll be good for those servants who master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or the third watch of the night. I love this picture. Now, how many of you guys are night owls? Right? Okay. A few of you guys. All right, now, this, this is going to be great. You guys are going to be like, yes, this is scriptural. All right? I'm not, not really sure that this is what he's saying. But the second or the third watch in the night, in Roman time zones or time frames, there's four watches in the night, okay? They kind of go in four-hour spans. Jewish, it's three. It's nine to twelve, twelve to three, three to six. For Jesus to say the second or the third watch is probably between midnight and 3 a.m., let's say. So Jesus is using like an illogical form. It's like, he's like, all right, the master is going to be happy with those people who are up even between 12 and 3. So some of you guys are like, yes, I told you it was scriptural. You're like nudging your wife or your friend, you know. I'm not sure that's what he's saying. Look, look at how he continues here. I love this. Verse 39. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. Of course. If I, by some means, knew that a thief was coming in my house, like kids up in the panic room in my house that doesn't exist, Right? I've got baseball bat, all the doors locked, and I'm standing at the door and waiting for the thief. I mean, of course, like, I'm going to be ready for this. Listen, we don't do that. Because after one night that our house doesn't get uh, broken into, then what do we do? Then after the next night and the next night and the next night, time, listen, creates a certain amount of comfort in our lives, doesn't it? If our house doesn't get broken into for like three years, we're not going to bed in our minds thinking, hey, the thief might come. So Jesus, listen, 
Jesus is saying to wait as if the thief would come in the middle of the night, maybe even the second or the third watch. He uses, listen, he uses something illogical to say that that is how our hearts are supposed to be waiting on him. It's so illogical, he's saying, culturally, but to me it's everything. This is exactly how you're supposed to wait, but time creates comfort. The Israelites had this issue. He didn't come one day. And then he didn't come another day. And then he didn't come another day and another day and another day. And pretty soon time created this great amount of comfort. And so listen, they began to live under the premise that he wasn't coming back. And I wonder how many of you are right there in that lifestyle. Like, oh, deep, deep down somewhere, you know that Scripture says that he's going to come back. But because he hasn't yet... It's created this certain amount of comfort in your heart. Well, if he hasn't come back yet, then surely he won't come back till at least next week, right? And so it's created this certain amount of comfort, friends. Comfort and complacency have such a close relationship. The more comfortable you get, the more complacent your spiritual nurturement focus on Christ gets, and the more we get lax. And so when the thief comes, we're like dead asleep. When the master knocks, like, was that something, someone knocking at the door? I'm not really sure. And I love Jesus because he goes on. Look at this. Verse 40. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This always uh, used to make me laugh because people would always come out with these prophecies. Jesus is coming back in the year 2000, Y2K, millennium, he's coming back. And I always be like, hey, please don't say that, because then he's not coming back. Because he says he's not coming back when we expect him. If someone says he's coming back in the year 2000, guess what? He's not coming back, you know? I always get angry at these people. Stop saying he's coming back. Then he won't. You know what I mean? I'm not quite sure if that's the way it works. but it's... So don't say he's coming back, right? It kind of makes me angry. But, but, the, but the scripture is clear. He's coming back when you least expect it. He's the parent that shows up at 8 instead of 10. Hey, everybody. What happened here? You know, like, like, what is this? Now, thankfully, Peter's going to ask a question. And Jesus is going to continue this teaching and pull our hearts and minds even deeper into this. But friends, I want each of you to understand this. We're not taking the movement of Christ serious enough. Like, we're not taking it seriously. We, we're not... We're not living it like it's life and death, moment by moment. Our culture has calloused us so much that we've lost our desperation, haven't we? We've lost the image that we are so in need of a Savior. Because someone who's in need of a Savior can't wait for Him to come back. And when you can't wait for Him to come back, you're at the door ready for the knock. It's when he knocks. Come on in. Come on in. And you're not ashamed. Because you haven't posed. You haven't hidden anything. You, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Come on in, Jesus. I told you that you were the King, Sovereign Lord of my life. And you are. I need you. Come in. Save me. And redeem me. Peter asked a question in verse 41. Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Peter, of course, being the spokesman here of the disciples... 
asks a question that I love that Jesus never answers, really. Verse 43, or verse 42. Jesus always, uh, most of the time anyway, uh, answers the question by saying another question. The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? Now here's what I'm going to do. This parable that he's about to share is a little bit wordy. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through it, okay? And then we're going to break it down after that. Is that all right with everybody? So he's talking about a master and a servant and a manager. Verse 43 says this. We'll finish this up and then go back. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth. He will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in the hour he is not aware of, he will cut him into pieces, wonderful, and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Verse 47. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Pretty wordy, right? Let's break it down. Verse 42 through, uh, 42 through 44. Let's read this section again. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? So here's what you have. You have a master and you have a manager and you have servants. In this parable... Jesus is talking about the manager. You guys all understand. The master is going to leave. Leaving the manager in charge of servants. And in this first example, Jesus says that this first manager has been very, very faithful to the servants. He's gave them their allowance at the proper time. He's gave them their food at the proper time. So when the master came back, the manager was like, hey, everything's like everything's in order. Everything, everything is like everything looks great. If you guys are taking notes, this individual, and we're gonna, I'm gonna give you guys four examples here, is living under the logic that he hasn't come, but he will come. Everything that this manager believes is he hasn't come. The master hasn't come, but he will. I believe it with all my heart. There's no question in my mind. He's not here right now. I can't see him. I can't touch him. But he will return. Is that you? Are you living in such a way that people would say that person is living under the logic that Jesus hasn't come yet, but he will? I can tell by his life. I mean, it's clear. He has put everything in order. He's waiting on pins and needles. He cannot wait. And his entire life has been a life of worship so that there's no surprises at the end of the day. Now, the second guy gets a little dicey. Verse 45. Let's look at this. But suppose... The servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. This individual is living under the logic of he hasn't come And he won't come. He hasn't come and he won't come. Now, maybe deep down, he believes somewhere that he'll probably come back. But he's living 
under the logic that the master hasn't come and won't come. So because of that, he takes the servants and he begins to beat them. Because since the cat's away, now all of a sudden he has power and authority and he likes it. And he believes that just because the master isn't visible, that the master is no longer in control. And so he can just do his own thing and be his own authority and live however he wish. But then the master comes home. And what's the penalty? He's cut into pieces. Great image, right? Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18. Jesus is referencing this, that when someone would mistreat a Hebrew servant... The penalty was dismemberment or dismemberment. Either way, your body's getting no dice. I'm not sure what the right word is. How many of you guys are right there? You're living under the logic of he, he hasn't come and he's not. People are looking at your life and no one can tell that you're waiting for anything except yourself. No one can tell that you're patiently waiting for, who, for, for him to return. Because it just looks like you're frivolously living for your own authority and so that you can gain more and more selfish power to escalate your name and escalate yourself. Friends, how many of you guys are right there in that quick category? Judgment will come to those people. Listen to this. Grace does not negate accountability. Alright? Grace does not negate accountability. The grace of God and Christ is all around us, but it does not mean that judgment will not come to this earth. Those who have been saved by grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ will spend an eternity with Him. Anyone else who is not living under that grace and received and accepted that grace will be judged. This third example is in verse 47. Look at this. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. Now this, this person is also dicey. This person is living under the logic of, he hasn't come, but he will come, and I don't really care. Like, he, he hasn't come, I'm pretty sure he's going to come, and you know what, I don't care. Like, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Um, listen to this. Because he's talking about a manager and servants, I think that this is escalating the teaching for disciple making. I think in some ways he answers Peter's question. Because the image here is what are you doing with the people that you're discipling? This is why scripture paints it very clear that pastors, worship leaders, small group leaders, and every person who is a Christian because you're called to make disciples will be judged by the way that you are discipling. This is the false teacher. This is the guy who knows all the truth, who knows the will of God, who understands the scriptures. But, but, but doesn't care. He'll even maybe teach it and present it to people, but deep down in his heart, he's just living like he doesn't care. On the outside, it looks like he's got it all together, but on the inside, it, like, I, I really don't. Friends, how many of you have lost your care? Huh? How many of you have lost your care? Like, you, listen, you feel so blah. You wake up and you feel blah. Spiritually. You go to bed, you feel blah. Weeks and weeks and weeks go by and you continue just to feel blah. You feel nothing. How many of you have lost your care? Is it possible that you've forgotten that he's coming back? Do some of you tonight just need to be reminded of the simple truth that he is returning? Listen, last example. Verse 48 says this. 
But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. So in one example, you have many blows. In this example, you have a few blows. I was on a, a ski lift in Colorado. Right, how many of you guys went skiing? Beautiful time. Awesome. Thank you for the enthusiasm there. That will really promote ice ski for next year. Awesome. Um, I was out skiing, and Brandon Castle and I were on the lift with this woman, and we began to talk. Somehow. Always seems to happen this way. Then, like 30 seconds, we're talking about things of God. And uh, she's like, you know what? I'm just, like, I got burnt out. Grew up in a Catholic church. Parents always took me. I, I just got tired of seeing the hypocrisy. She's like, I'm just really burnt out on religion. So she looked at us. She got really serious all of a sudden. And she, like, looked at us. It was, like, negative 20. We're, like, uh, you know, kind of cricking our neck. And she said, here's my deal. Like, I don't, like, I don't, I'm not really concerned about whether there's a bigger God or not. Like, I'm just going to do my thing. She, she was pleading ignorance. Friends, Scripture says in Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter 1 that, that no one is without excuse. The Scripture, this passage right here, this is the guy who says, you know what, I'm not sure if he's coming. He's living, living under the logic. I'm not sure if he's coming, so I'm just going to do my own thing. She said, she said I, I, I just don't know about this God thing, so you know what, I'm just going to be on my own journey, and I'm just going to figure it out on my own. Friends, ignorance does not lack judgment. You guys hear this? You can claim ignorance all you want. Scripture paints it clear that even the ignorance, Romans chapter 1, no one is without excuse, friends. Everyone will face judgment. Now, it's hard to explain the many blows versus the few blows, except to say that judgment will be harsher for those individuals who understand the will of God than those individuals who are ignorant to it. But either way, Judgment the same. So, four examples, you have one that was blessed and good. And it was the one who was waiting. Jesus ends this teaching by saying this. From everyone, in the middle of verse 48 there. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Listen to this. None of you in this room are ignorant anymore. None of you. Not a single one of you can claim ignorance. Tonight has been presented to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Clearly. He created, sin separated us from God. Christ redeemed us by His death on a cross and resurrection. And through that relationship with Jesus... You too can escape judgment and spend an eternity with Christ by living faithfully, waiting with Him here and now. To whom much is entrusted, much is expected, disciples of Jesus Christ. To whom people that have heard the message, much is expected. Is it possible, listen to this, that the reason why the faithful manager was, was ready, waiting with everything prepared, because he feared the Master. Was it possible that he respected him and feared him and balanced that with love so much so that he couldn't wait for his return to show him how faithful and obedient he had been? Is it possible that our lack of watchfulness and waiting and taking the Jesus movement serious is that simply we just have lost our care? That we're really at the core of us not that interested in what he would have to say if he were to come back right now. That's, that's the way we're living, or most of us. 
We're acting as if we have no desperation, no, no care. The master, the first manager, is like, look, look, I fear him so much that everything is going to be taken care of like he never left. And wasn't that the call of the disciples? Come on. Wasn't that the call of the disciples? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Listen, as if I had never left. Like, go and take this movement as if I had never left because essentially I hadn't because I've given you my Holy Spirit who's empowering you to do the works of me. Friends, there's been two waiting rooms in our existence. Two waiting rooms. We have the Israelite nation. Thankfully, we have a great amount of Scripture showing us what they did with their experience. They were waiting on the Messiah to come. And what do we see? Constant doubt. They make false idols and worship them. They relinquish their faith in God. They see the sea part. And then weeks later are saying, God, put us back in slavery. That's what they did with their waiting period. There were over and over the Israelite nation is saying, oh, woe is us. God put us back in slavery when all he was doing was redeeming them from the yoke of slavery. We have that example in history to see. So friends, the question becomes for you and I, what do you and I do with our time in the waiting room? Have you ever lost your keys? Keys. Anyone ever lost your keys? Okay. Or your wallet? Whatever, okay? You've lost something. Now, I've lost my keys before. I'm somewhat forgetful at times. You lose your keys, and they can literally be in your pocket. Right? And they they always happen at the most inconvenient time. Right? Like, they're always right when you need to go somewhere, because you're looking for them. Right? (laughs) Captain Obvious there, right? So you're looking for your keys. And, and you guys have felt this. Your palms start to get sweaty. You're like, I, I can't find my wallet or my keys or my credit card, whatever it is. And your heart, come on, starts beating fast, isn't it? And you're looking everywhere. I mean, you're shredding it. You're blaming it all on someone else, obviously, right? Is your wife's fault? Is your friend's fault? Or who took your car first? I mean, you, you are just frantically looking and searching high and low. You cannot wait to find those keys. I mean, if it takes you an hour and you're calling people, you're like, hey, dude, I know, I know you're busy and all, but could you come over and help me find my keys? Like, come on, let's do this. We've got to find my keys right now. Over keys. Our heart beats. And our palms get sweaty. And we, and we just get frantic. We look high and low. We search the unsearchable. And when we find them, I mean, it's like the most glorious thing in the world, isn't it? When we find them, I mean, we're like putting them up on the pedestal. I found, and you're calling everyone, you're texting everyone. Don't worry, I found my keys. Thanks for the prayers, you know? What? Why don't we have even a near of that fraction of franticness when it comes to waiting on the master to return? How much does your heart beat? How frantically are you making preparations for his return? Listen, how anxious are you to see his face? Listen, does it keep you up at night? A lot of things keep you up at night, I know. But does that, does the fact 
that the Savior of the universe will return? Does that like make you shudder? Does that give you chills just at the thought of it? Friends, the Israelites did a lot of things with their time in the waiting room. The question for you and I is, what will we do? Dress with readiness. Lamps kept burning. Even willing to stay up to the second or the third watch of the night. Waiting at the door because we know the thief is coming. And when the master knocks on the door, we're ready saying, come on in. I have nothing to hide. I'm not ashamed. I'm ready for you. Will you please take me home? Oh, Savior, I've been waiting patiently, but anxiously. Friends, which one are you of these four? Which one are you? Are you the first manager who's got things kept in order just like he never left? Are you the second guy who said, you know what, like, he's, like I'm... I just can't believe that he's coming because he's not here today. And he said he's going to come back. Every generation thought he was coming back. Every generation. Guess what? He hasn't yet. And so, friends, are you living like he's not? And your complacency and your comfort are just overcoming you? Or are you the person that knows all of this knowledge, but at the core of you, you just don't care anymore? You're just like, forget it. Forget this Jesus movement stuff. He may return one day, and you know what? I'll just have to deal with the consequences. Are you willing to deal with the consequences? Tonight, if you are ignorant, you are no more. Fourth category, if you're ignorant when you walked in here, the gospel of grace is your only way to the Father. Friends, what are you doing with your time in the waiting room? What does it look like to have an entire body, heart beating, Dress ready, lamp burning, waiting at the door. And when he knocks, we together open and say, we have been waiting. Let's pray. God, God, I pray. Um, I pray, God, that you'll show us that it's ignorance to live in the 6 to 9.45 time frame. I pray, Lord, that you'll show us that you're coming at an unexpected time without a phone call and that preparations must be made. Lord Jesus, by the power of your Spirit tonight, I pray that You will convict our hearts of our carelessness, of our taking the Jesus movement with such a lackluster attitude. God, I pray for those individuals tonight who have even been tearing others down by their complacency. I pray tonight, God, for a massive church repentance that You will teach us what it looks like to be dress ready, lamp burning waiting for you to come back from the wedding banquet and then watching our reward as you invite us in to the great, to the great banquet of an eternity. Let's stand together and respond.